Hi, it's Mark Graben from Value Capture here. This is a bonus episode with some additional conversation with Ron Suskind, our guest from episode 57 of the Habitual Excellence podcast. In this bonus episode, you'll hear more of the backstory of how the book, The Price of Loyalty, came to be. You'll learn more about Ron's relationship with Paul O'Neill and a little bit more about the background of Paul O'Neill's time as the Secretary of the Treasury in the George W. Bush administration. Um, So if you haven't heard episode 57, I encourage you to check that out either before you listen to this or after. Um, In episode 57, you'll hear a lot more about the leadership principles of Paul O'Neill, the application to healthcare and beyond. So here's more with Ron Suskind. Um, you know, Ron, you, from, from what I'm told, you had a lasting friendship with Paul O'Neill that went beyond the collaboration for the book. Can you yeah. tell us more about that? Sure, sure. You know, Paul and I uh, met and uh, it was a it was a powerful bond. <laughs> uh, initially, it was uh, I'll tell you the meeting. That's kind of a nice. Fun meet. Could, you could use it in a Preston Sturgis movie where Paul and I first met and we went through some big public, one might even consider historic activities together. And then uh, we stayed uh, in very tight communion and colloquy and um, in, in affection for uh, decades. So, I mean, let me tell you the first moment, though, because it's kind of an interesting Paul O'Neill moment. I was out of my senior national affairs job at the Journal uh, just. I I left that job in 2000, and, you know, I had written, at that point, Hope in the Unseen, which was my first book, which was uh, launched by uh, uh, a series in the Journal that had won me the Pulitzer uh, just a few months after 9-11, uh, we in the Fourth Estate, and I was based in Washington at that point, you know, we're, we're, we're feeling a, a shift in the landscape where just for doing the basic things that we did, <laughs> which is ask sometimes inconvenient questions, we were being charged with disloyalty. And I reported on the Bush administration. And the two major first stories that got into that administration, second one of them had as its star player, a guy named John DeUlio, who was head of the faith-based program uh, for George W. Bush. But he was running the faith-based program and, and he was in a, in a period inside of the Bush administration in which he saw that the policy process had been deeply um, uh, uh, you know, sort of a, a reduced and um, discarded. Um, and uh, he was troubled by that um, and troubled by the way the political mandate was really driving everything inside of that administration. And he wrote a six, 7,000 word manifesto of life in the Bush administration, which is really quite something. It starts with on the record, you know, here it is. And I ran that in Esquire. So this was a, a gr- the great first crisis of this administration because uh, it was in Dulio's own words. I just excerpted out the thousands of words in a big giant 10,000 word Esquire piece. It caused enormous havoc. You know, there were press conferences and, you know, 
people, Ari Fleischer was, you know, taking, you know, questions from the, the media, like, oh my God, you know, it shows that George W. Bush is uh, maybe overwhelmed by the job, and that they're not caring about any of the policy issues. In any event, Julio uh, was actually called up by people in the White House. And, you know, given that kind of break your leg kind of <laughs> Talking uh, to, yeah. thing, and, um, you know, how could you, you've heard the president, um, and, and Julio, uh, as the piece came out, basically uh, said that I, uh, you know, I'm not responsible for my own beliefs, you know, like he he says, you know, <laughs> what I've said is baseless and groundless. Essentially. Hmm. <laughs> Trying to but walk I, it back, you mean? Yeah, a, a profound walk it back. You know, my own beliefs are baseless and groundless, as are my experiences. So, you know, um, so right after that happened, uh, that big kaboom, I was, the Washington Post wrote a, um, a big profile of me in the front of the style section the confident confidant or something like that. Susskind gets people to talk and, mm. and, and O'Neill and everyone else had read that with a picture in it. So that sets the, the table. Uh, now a couple of weeks pass, uh, a couple, actually a couple of days after the Julio story came out. Um, and that's in the early December of 2002 uh, 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 when Paul O'Neill is fired as treasury secretary after two years. But prior to that having happened, he had accepted an invitation to speak at the Sulgrave Club, which is sort of the women's version of the Metropolitan Club, which is for men in Washington. It's kind of that exclusive old world, those who run Washington Club. And uh, and my wife's a member of the Sulgrave Club. And she's handing me an invitation. We're sitting at the kitchen table, an invitation saying, Paul O'Neill is speaking tomorrow night at the Sulgrave Club. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's impossible. I mean, you know, he just had been fired. I said, you know, uh, O'Neill uh, is in the witness relocation program. He's not speaking anywhere mm-hmm. in this hemisphere, much less in public at the Sulgrave Club. And so uh, she's like, well, you, it's worth a phone call. And you bet it was. So I called up the club and they said, no, he He's accepted and he's not throwing overboard this invitation. He'll be here tomorrow night. Mm. And I said, okay. So I show up and there he is. And it's mostly the husbands are actually there that, you know, the men who've been running Washington for the last 30 years. And they're, they're there and O'Neill, you know, and they're mostly tall men. Let me just say that in blue Brooks Brothers suits with white hair. And O'Neill is in tucked inside of this grove of sequoias. And I see him there and I, I kind of edge my way in and he's about my height. So we're the only people of this, uh, of this altitude there. And we're eye to eye. And he's like, Oh, you're Ron Susskind. And I, yes, I read about you in the Washington post. Um, and you did that piece on Paul on John Dulia. And I said, yeah, yeah. He's like, huh? Yeah. Now, here's the thing, you know, uh, you know, these guys, Ron, this is different. You know, this this gang that I've known my whole life, George W. Bush, you know, 
I mean, you know, they're saying, you know, uh, talk is cheap. We're going to, we're going to do more than that. You know, we're going to, we're going to make you pay. It's a kind of tactical model of retribution for disloyalty or for speaking out. And so poor Deulio, he's a young guy like you, Ron, and, and he had to make a tough decision. You know, could he, could he afford uh, what was hitting him here? Could he afford this professionally and personally to own his truths? And, uh, and he decided he couldn't, and he pled for mercy. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, Ron. See, I'm an old guy. And um, and I'm really rich, so there's nothing they can do to hurt me. That was a great Paul O'Neill moment. That's quite an introduction. And that was the beginning of our friendship at that moment. And I said, okay, well, so here's a book I'd like you to read, The Hope of the Unseen, about the inner-city African-American kid who goes to Brown University, grew up desperately poor, uh, makes it from one edge of America to the other. Give it to Paul. Paul reads the book that night because Paul is, that's Paul. He'll read it in that, that day. I think Nancy, his wife, read it too. And uh, a few days later, he says, let's have breakfast at the Watergate where he was living. And we went, I went over to the Watergate and we had breakfast together. And we talked about hope in the unseen. And here is Paul who grew up desperately poor, as we know. His dad was a janitor at the VA. They were often itinerant, moved around, uh, very difficult. And he grew up in poverty, just like Cedric, the kid in the book. And, um, and he said, can I, can I be Cedric? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I think you can. I said, but what that's going to take, as you, as you imagine now, is, is a kind of embrace of truth that's not fashionable in this period. You're gonna have to, uh, you're gonna have to let me know everything. And we could produce something extraordinary. It's kind of what Paul and I called an experiment in transparency. And, uh, and he said, I'm in, I'm ready. You're the writer, I'm your subject. I'm not the writer. I'm just gonna be a protagonist in one of, your famous Ron Susskind narratives. And I said, okay, let's go. And, um, and then uh, just a bit later, he gave me uh, the first big offering, which was uh, his schedule with 7,630 entries, every single call or meeting during his two years as treasury secretary, updated at the end of the day, along with who talked to who and what was discussed and, and all of the rest, it, just a dream for transparency and a search for truth. And then not long after that, of course, um, he uh, were able to get 19,000 internal documents from his time as treasury secretary. Mm -hmm. And that's how we knew everything there was that was essential and important of that administration and of the conduct of state and of uh, all the essential and important issues in real time during the life of the sitting president. It wasn't just Paul, it was, it was Paul giving me those documents, me being able to essentially allow uh, for um, Americans to know 
the state of uh, of our national life. And at that moment, and Paul, I didn't realize that Paul was very much an advocate, a believer in transparency as a management principle prior to that. I didn't know that much about Paul's life prior to Treasury Secretary. I actually found out from some journal reporters knew of him. They said, oh no, O'Neill is a transparency zealot. You know, he, this is the way he ran out Coa. This is why he made it such a successful company. He is a believer in openness, in shared search for truth, in taking out hierarchies and allowing for a flattening. I mean, he had he had a he had a an open workplace in the eighties, right? You know, and so that's where Paul's principles as a manager, as a and and principles that gave gave him enormous success for, for the companies he ran. Uh, ended up being essential to the governing of the United States and to inform consent and to large historical issues as well. Well, and uh, back to the the nineteen thousand documents that you mentioned, because um, it almost sounds like that there was some sort of you know leaking or something there. But as I heard, and I'll give credit and put a link in the show notes, uh, an interview that you and Paul did with Terry Gross from the show Fresh Air on NPR, where you all discussed this. And, and, and hearing Paul talking about how he had asked the, I believe, the chief legal counsel for the Treasury Department, give me all the documents you can. And these had been reviewed and scrubbed and given to Paul, They're then passed along to you. There was nothing untoward about that. Absolutely right. I mean, it was a really an interesting play because I said to Paul right after that first breakfast where he then gave me his schedule, I said, before and after each one of these meetings, there's documents. He's like, yeah, yeah, they're over at Treasury. I said, can we get them? Can I get them for the You can ask, yeah. And he's like, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, and we went, he and I, actually, I dug in with some constitutional solids because it's what he's entitled to. And and basically, we found out, we did this in unison, that, you know, that a Treasury Secretary is like a mini president. You know, they can get everything. Um, you know, Jim Baker, who was Treasury Secretary, had, you know, has 50 boxes in his garage. Um, and um, and so Paul then went to the general counsel at Treasury and said, uh, uh, Ron Suskind is doing a book on me and I want to I, I want to get everything I'm entitled to. And um, and there was a little daisy chain of the general counsel checking with one of me and one of my people as to what he's entitled to give Paul. It was just a little dance of senior officials and me and Paul. And that's how we got those documents. But, but again, Paul asked and received them and they were cleaned for anything more classified. Now, the difficulty is, is that and this is a bit of a twist, is whatever program they were using to clean the document, they took off the, the actual doc, but they left the cover sheets to the classified packets. Apparently, that didn't get cleaned off the, the disk of 19,000. So I had the cover sheets, which tells you an enormous amount of what was actually in the documents. <laughs> Was that a bit of a mis- was that a mistake or an oversight yeah. on somebody's part? Well, I there? think it was just yeah. a. Yeah. I think it was. I don't think anyone had asked for this in this way, and I think the program they used just was 
faulty. Uh, um, but then they, but then the problem was, is that they made it sound as though in the, when the book came out is that, that Paul and I had made off with classified materials. Um, and we were, and, and, and they put essentially me under investigation. I kept Paul out of it. I said, no, no, I, I own the documents. They're mine. Mm -hmm. Paul gave them to me. They're out of his hands so that, uh, I could be the target essentially target of the government inquest. Uh, and I, of course, am protected by the first amendment. Paul did what he did, what he believed was right and told was correct. And he handed me the documents, keep him out of it. And in, in that interview with Terry Gross, you know, Paul said that this misunderstanding or whatever it was could have been cleared up with this, a single phone call to the attorney there at the Treasury Department. I mean, did that get cleared up or did they sort of drag you through no, this for a no, while? I don't think that was actually quite right. It was, it was, it, it wasn't that, that was, that was a little simplified. Uh, it, it was that, it, it was that they believed that um, through various conversations between Paul and, a, and the general counsel who had then left uh, and me, <laughs> that uh, I had been given these documents and that uh, they were they were not convinced that no one knew that um, that these documents uh, uh, may possess classified materials. Uh, and so so I, that went on for years actually. I had to, I had a team from Covington and Burling handled, me or essentially the case pro bono, thank God. And it went on for years where they were trying to get the documents because what they said after several months is that, is that uh, um, an array of documents, I think 140 of them uh, should have been marked classified, but were not. Um, and I'm like, well, I'm not sure whose fault that is. But we want them back because they're the property of the U.S. government and they are, we consider them sensitive uh, materials. And that we fought over for years. Um, ultimately, the government, you know, just we deadlocked. We, we, it didn't, you know, it, it ended without, without a change. But, you know, but, but what was interesting is that by virtue of the reaction of the administration, it in a way made the wider public feel as though that by virtue of me doing this book and Paul cooperating with it, that we were being placed under, you know, let's just say a, a, a prosecutorial, um, uh, you know, a dictate uh, because of uh O'Neill having spoken truthfully through, through the book and and you know and uh and in a way that that made people want to want to go get the book even more. This all happened <laughs> the day of the publication yeah. of the book, mind you, where this was all over the world that Suskind and O'Neill are under federal prosecution mm. for 
um, improper receipt of documents of the U.S. government. Now, there are, I mean, there are many, many books written by people who leave administrations. Sometimes people are looking to set the record straight or they're, they're upset or disgruntled or in some way. Um, when, when you were talking about the idea of a book or talking about the book with, with Paul, you mentioned transparency, truth. Were, were his motivations, do you think, different than other people who write books after leaving an administration? Well, I think they were. I mean, I, I think it's it's clearly quite different. This this was not a memoir. This was not, uh, you know, George Tennant writing his memoir about it or any number of other senior officials. This was Paul believing, really, in the in the truth finding journalistic process, um, and saying, "Yeah, I'll I will be a." a key subject, a protagonist in your book, Ron. I will I will give you everything I can and all of my insights and time. And um and you write about me what you wish. You know, I think Paul Paul understandably was was wary of the uh here's my story. <laughs> in my book, model of people leaving administrations and writing about their experiences. He's like, no, no, you're, you're a great American journalist and you've written amazing stuff. This is your book. <laughs> uh, and it's an independent work. It's not a work in which a key character uh, gets uh, self-renders him, mm-hmm. his or herself. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like he wasn't looking for that self-serving, super rosy, glowing um, portrayal of himself. Because, I mean, for one, I mean, he, he he wasn't planning on turning around and running for office some years later, which often seems like one of the motivations of uh, of books like that. He, he probably couldn't be accused of that. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, what's what's extraordinary about it, Mark, is that he... <laughs> He abided by principle. <laughs> it's like, no, there's a reason the press is the only profession mentioned in the Bill of Rights. This is something Paul would say. You know, you have an important job in society. I mean, it doesn't work unless the journalists are there. You know, power is not held to account. <laughs> Consent is not properly and fully informed. And I am willing to be a participant in that process. Uh, and, and you write whatever the facts guide you to say and render. You know, and, and, and I have always said that's a particularly courageous act and embrace of truth, mm-hmm. you know, of the process, as I believe rightly it should be conducted. Thanks for listening to Habitual Excellence presented by Value Capture. We hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and please also rate and review it in your favorite podcast directory or app. To learn more about Value Capture and how we can help your organization on this journey to habitual excellence, visit our website at www.valuecapturellc.com.